Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And uh, I'm excited that you're here because today we are jump-started this brand new series called The Revolutionary, and we are going to be talking about, for the, the course of the next month, how Jesus changed human history for everybody. And uh, before we actually jump into this, I, I think that uh, before we actually get into the series, why did Jesus do this? How did Jesus do this? Is this even true? Like, what do we mean by this series title, and why are we doing a series about this, to say that Jesus isn't just a revolutionary, but the revolutionary is sort of a big claim. And so why is it that we think that's true? And uh, I want to spend some time this morning before I get into uh, the meat of what I prepared, just to sort of talk a little bit about um, why we're doing this series in the first place. Um, like, first of all, like, what is a revolutionary? Um, maybe you could sort of cobble together your own definition, but um, there, there seem to be like four basic traits that almost every revolutionary, regardless of sort of what area or uh, discipline that they are revolutionary in, there are four specific traits that they seem to have in common. And the four traits are that they are original, that they're radical, that they're heretical, and that they're transformational. Now, what do we mean by these things? For someone to be original means that they, they, when they look at life, they sort of see things from a fresh, creative, or alternative perspective. Uh, radical in that, like, they prioritize their area of passion or expertise above everything else. Like, everything else sort of, like, like pales in comparison. It sort of falls to the wayside. They're heretical in that they, they challenge people. They challenge the way the status quo, the way that things have always been, the way that people think. They challenge deeply held beliefs that sometimes frustrate and trigger people. And they're transformational. Um, they change uh, the way that people do things, the way that the entire world works, or at least their field works before and after them. And maybe when you look at this definition of, you know, somebody who is original, radical, heretical, and transformational, there are certain, you know, names that may come to mind, right? Um, maybe some of you are just like, uh, yeah, Albert Einstein, okay? Steve Jobs, Ben and Jerry, Right? I feel some of you pulling away when I said Ben and Jerry, but I would just like to argue, okay, Ben and Jerry had the brilliant foresight to, during a time when a single serving was considered a scoop of ice cream, they boldly proclaimed, I think it's the personal pint. And at least according to my pandemic experience, that proved true, Okay. And this revolutionized the world because a lot of our lives and our pants sizes will never be the same because of these two people. And some of us are grateful, some of us are upset, but it's, it's real. Einstein, you know, gave us sort of a, a new way to, uh, to do math. Jobs, he gave us a, a new way to use technology. But Jesus gave the world a new way to be human. And I would argue that Jesus had a bigger impact on the way the world works than any other revolutionary that you could cobble together from this definition and place on your personal list. 
And even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe that Jesus is God, um, even if you're just like, I don't even know if there is a God, it is undeniable that Jesus has had an impact on the way you live your everyday life. Now, that sounds like a big claim, but there's actually a secular academic term for this reality. It's something called redemption and lift. And it's this well-documented reality that societies who become predominantly Christian experience a boost in economic growth, an increase in the value of education, um, and, and elevated treatment of women, as well as spikes in entrepreneurial thinking and, and a sense of personal responsibility. And when historians track what happens when large groups or sections of a community begin to believe in Jesus and actually live the way he said is best, that there's a sense of redemption and lift that overtakes that entire community. And so the reason why we're gonna like sort of wrestle through some ideas in this series is that like I kind of wonder like if we had the ability to, you know, borrow a, a, a Back to the Future DeLorean time machine. We were able to go back and be in the, you know, sort of the crowd while Jesus was teaching some of these ideas, which things that we sort of take for granted now in our modern American society, which things that we were just like, oh yeah, that's just kind of the way that people, of course, that's, that's common sense. Which things would we recognize hearing Jesus first teach these ideas would we suddenly see, like, wait, nobody thought or lived this way before Jesus. He absolutely revolutionized the way the world works. And I think the big question is, if Jesus, if one person can be right about so many things that we've latched onto in our culture that has inarguably made life better, what else might he be right about? And so there's so many ways that Jesus has revolutionized the world and our lives. But during this series, we're going to focus on four things in particular. Uh, we're going to focus on the Jesus' views on grace, truth, good, and beauty. And uh, man, if there's something here where you're just like, wait, I want to know more about that. In fact, I know somebody who actually might want to know more about that. Um, that is why we have all sorts of, of invites. There should be um, some scattered throughout the auditorium. There's a big display. Um, there's social media things that you can share. Um, but maybe some of you are looking at this and like, wait, Jesus has a view on beauty that changed the world? Absolutely. And you're gonna have to wait for week four to find out what it is. Um, but I think every step of the way on this series is gonna be enlightening and helpful and um, if you're sort of struggling with your faith, if you don't even know what you believe or if you believe in Jesus, I think this series is going to maybe turn on some light bulbs in your head um, in a way that may help you sort of move forward. And uh, today we're going to tackle this idea of grace. And uh, if you're taking notes, and, and I really suggest that you do, because I think what you might write down, you're going to want to remember and you're going to be able to take it with you. The title of my message is No More of This. No More of This. Now, I think sometimes, like, you know, to wrap your head around something, it's helpful to, like, name the opposite of that thing. Um, and I think this is true in a lot of things. And so I, I think an interesting place to start when we are talking about this idea of grace, at least from the mind of Jesus, is like, okay, that's great. Like, what is the inverse of grace? 
And I would say, if we, we wouldn't have to think very hard to say, like, it's probably like, you know, this idea of getting someone back, making someone pay. The one word version of this would probably be revenge. And here's something that I know about American cultures. We love our revenge movies. I mean, I do, right? Like, we, we, we love this stuff. And in fact, if you were to just, like, pay attention to some of the top movies on streaming platforms right now, quite a few of them are based on this concept of revenge, of getting people back, of making people pay, right? You have the, the, the North Man and sort of the mantra line of this is like this, he keeps whispering it throughout the movie of like, I will avenge you, father. And it's like creepy. It's like his inside evil boy voice as he's trying to get people back, right? Uh, there are these movies of like the harder they fall, right? The bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? Like they, they may seem like a big deal. They may seem pretty powerful. We're gonna bring them down. We're gonna get them back. The wrath of man, right? This guy decides to go on this rampage to get people back and, um, and basically dump all of his anger from how he's been gotten into getting people back. And then there's vengeance. I mean, I wonder what that one's about. It's really vague with the title. It's hard to tell, but maybe some of you have seen it. We could talk later. And we like movies like this. We like movies where, you know, someone is being pushed around, held down, taken advantage of, treated unfairly, and they decide they've had enough and they are going to make people pay. And part of the pleasure is sort of getting to live vicariously through them. Because, I mean, you can deny it, but we all know this is true. We've all had moments where we were like, I really want to punch this person or just freak out and scream at them or flip over a table, right? We wanted to do this when someone has wronged us, right? But our notion of civility or maybe our fear of prison keeps us from doing it. Okay, we're just like, I want to. Everything in my, like myself is telling me to, but I probably ought not to. And there's something invigorating about watching someone else do the thing that we want to do but feel like we can't. We love seeing someone who's powerless rise up and take their power back and exercise justice. Now, obviously, like, people in these movies take things further than you ever would, right? Um, Like, maybe you're just like, okay, I get what you're saying. Like, I've never fantasized about putting my dumb boss in a wood chipper, but I, I understand the point. Okay, I understand because there have been things that I have wanted to do, right? I've wanted to make someone feel how they make other people feel. I've wanted to inconvenience someone in the way they're constantly inconveniencing me. And maybe that impulse arises in you where you're like, man, when someone cuts me off in traffic, what I wanna do is speed up in front of them and then slam on my brakes and cut them off in traffic so they know how it feels. Like when someone, you know, makes these amazing plans that I would have loved to have been a part of and they don't include me, I want to then make plans that I probably don't even want to execute just so I can disinclude them. Make it really obvious that they were the ones left off the list and then post a bunch of FOMO pictures on my account and make sure that they, I accidentally tag them like, oh, I'm sorry, you weren't there. Whoopsie. Like when someone says something hurtful to me, I want to immediately like have the witty like response to just fire back and say something hurtful to them that just cuts them down to size to where they're so taken aback. They're like, "Uh, uh, 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 uh," and you're like, yeah. And then I just walk away. That's what I want to do. 
And here's what is so interesting. We have always been this way. This is such a human trait that virtually every ancient religious code outlines acceptable parameters for payback. Did you know this? Like, I'm not talking about like political codes, right? Or communal codes. I'm talking about religious codes of uh, where God is just like, you know what? That, here's what you are allowed to do, right? If they do this, you're allowed to do that to like, you know, get them, just to make things fair, just to even things out a little bit. That, that's, that's okay. And this is even true about the tradition that Jesus was born into and Christianity ultimately grew out of, um, the Jewish tradition. And some of these laws and rules and outlines are bizarrely specific. And, you know, some of you are like, man, I'm just, I'm racking my brain. I can't think of how specific they could be. Let me give you a fun example. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 11 says this. If two Israelite men get into a fight and the wife of one tries to rescue her husband by grabbing the testicles of the other man, you must cut off her hand. Show her no pity. Now, I know you're thinking, if I've seen this once, I've seen it a thousand times, okay? You know, you are, you're fighting with a fellow brother in Christ, okay? Um, you know, you pulled your robe off just because it was slowing you down, you know what I mean? And you're, you're really going at it. And, and, and one of the wives, one of your wives is just, she's getting nervous, right? And she feels like it's getting a little too intense. And she's like, I got to stop this fight. And so she tries to intervene, but her hand, you know, it grazes. I mean, you know, you know, um, I'm not going to say it, even though Moses wasn't afraid in Deuteronomy, but like it sort of grazes that area. And suddenly, I mean, it kind of works. I mean, the fight stops, right? The fight stops and everyone backs away and it's like all awkward and quiet and people are sort of looking down and, uh, and then suddenly, you know, they're just like, listen, that was, that got out of hand. Okay. Uh, something has to be done. And here's the good news. There's a rule about that. It's easy to know what to do to make things right about this infraction. You cut off that woman's hand. Now, I know you're thinking like, well, what if it was an accident? What if she didn't mean to? No! Are you crazy? Show her no pity! By the way, this whole chapter is amazing. If you just want some fun afternoon reading, Deuteronomy 25 is just, it's all, it's got it all. Now, part of us, when we like see this, when we read this and process through it, part of us is just like, this is absurd and extreme, right? But there's another part of us that is like, you know, at least there are rules. At least the guidelines are clear. People know where the boundaries are. And if you cross a line, people are going to have to be held accountable. That's what I like about it, right? Especially for those of us that are more black and white thinkers, we're like, this is helpful. I like that. Everybody knows in advance, if you do this, you're gonna lose a hand, okay? So, so maybe, maybe just, just let them fight, okay? Or like at least use a stick, you know what I mean? To like try and break them up, something. There's this uh, really well-known reference uh, about this idea that sort of becomes almost sort of the the shorthand for this whole concept. And you've heard this before, even if you're not a Christian, you've never been to church. Um, it's found in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19. 
And it says this, anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Anybody heard that before? This is where it's from. Uh, Whatever anyone does to another person must be paid back in kind. And you know what the people who originally received this, do you know what they liked about it then? The same thing we like about it now. It's fair. It feels fair. And we want fair. At least on the surface, at least when somebody does something to us, we want what's fair. And here's the reality. Every God-fearing Jew lived according to this law for hundreds and hundreds of years. But this is Old Testament stuff. So if you fast forward to the New Testament, by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews have been overthrown by the the Romans and they're beaten down, they're oppressed, they're overworked, they're overtaxed. There's rampant abuse of power and they find themselves praying for a Messiah, which they believe is gonna be a revolutionary, right? A military hero that is going to come to the rescue, who's gonna overthrow the evil empire, who's gonna put all the good guys in power and who is gonna make all the bad guys pay. And some people were starting to think it was Jesus. And then he would say stuff like this that made them think that maybe not. One of the most famous things that Jesus says, Matthew chapter five, verse 38. He says, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Some of you are like, wow, we actually, we did. We just heard that, right? It's in the book of Leviticus, which I now know. He says, but I say, in other words, like I have a little bit of a different perspective, a different opinion, a different take. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken, give your coat too. If a soldier demands you carry his gear a mile, carry it too. What he's talking about here is a concept called grace. And although it is the core of virtually everything that Jesus teaches, he never really actually defines it. He, he just demonstrates it. Sometimes he tells stories about it. And all these stories that he tells about the concept of grace actually make it look like he is sort of intertwining these two related but, but different concepts, grace and mercy. And so what do these things mean? This is the way that I would define them. Mercy is when you're justified in punishing someone, but you don't. They deserve it. They've got it coming. No one would judge you for doing it. You're just getting them back. And grace is when you're justified in not blessing someone, but you do. They don't deserve it. Like no one is gonna do good things for them, bring good things to them. No one's gonna help them because they're the worst. And yet all of Jesus' stories sort of wrap these ideas up together. In fact, in each scenario that Jesus outlines in this passage, retaliation feels justified. Are you serious? 
Like if someone does this, this, or this, those, if someone punches me, no, I, 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 I'm justified to get them back. If someone like takes something that was mine, this is, it's like some sort of a petty lawsuit that the judge didn't catch how unfair it was. I'm just gonna give them more. If somebody tells me I have to do one thing because they're technically allowed to tell me to, I have to, you want me to do more? It seems so bizarre. It seems like, like you should have a right to get them back, and you do. But Jesus is saying, instead, show kindness and be of service. And his audience was like me and you. They weren't as spiritual as you think. His original audience would have been like, what are you talking about? The whole reason I'm here is I thought that you were going to teach all the people I don't like a lesson. <laughs> That's kind of why I signed up for this thing, okay? Because I want to be on the right side. I thought you were going to like make the people I don't like feel bad and feel stupid and you know get demoted and pay for being wrong. And if you're not going to do that, then what is the point of your powers? Because if I had superpowers, that is exactly what I would do with them. I'll make people pay. And I wonder if you have ever thought like that before. Some of you are nodding yes. Others of you are still lying to yourselves, but you have. And here's what I think is so bizarre about us. You know, most of us would probably say, like, in general, yeah, I agree. You shouldn't be petty or punitive or vengeful. But a lot of us would probably also say, listen, if you mess with my friends and family, I will hunt you down and I will get you back and Jesus will help me. <laughs> I wonder if you've noticed that sometimes there is this discrepancy between what we say and what we do. Like a lot of noble ideas go right out the window when people are fearful, desperate, or depleted. Like it's easy to be graceful when you are at your best and everything's going your way. But we don't care about that, do we? Here's what we wanna know. What beliefs will you actually live out when life's at its worst? Because there's a lot of things where like, yeah, I believe in this and this is what I care about and this is what I would do. And then when the rubber meets the road, we're like, well, I mean, there's the extenuating circumstances being what they are. I feel like it's different. We wanna know like when believing costs you the most and is potentially the most painful when you want to do it least, which beliefs will you still live out? When Jesus was alive, there were a lot of people that wanted to see him dead. And I gotta tell you, they didn't hate him because he was nice and did miracles. Doesn't make any sense. It was because his ideas required them to be and see in ways that were upsetting and disturbing and uncomfortable. And everyone, whether you were a follower or a dissenter of Jesus, we're all wondering the same thing. When they eventually come for him, and they will, what then? Because that's when what he says he believes matters. Because we don't care what you say. We want to see what you're going to do. And they all wonder to themselves, in that moment, will he fight back and make them pay, or will he turn the other cheek and give them grace? And in fact, with Jesus, they got to see what he actually did. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. 
says this, Judas, one of the disciples arrived with a crowd armed with swords and clubs. The traitor, Judas, had given them a signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. And Judas went straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him a kiss. And Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you came for. So they grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put your sword, put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. What a chaotic scene. Like if I'm honest though, you know who my favorite is? The gladiator disciple. I love this guy. There's so many depictions of this moment because apparently I'm not the only one who likes this guy or likes this moment. Like a lot of people like this moment. This is a famous painting that shouldn't be famous because it's terrible. Also like what was going for a sword during this day and age is just a little short for my taste. Would you want to get in a sword fight with this sword? It's like a steak knife that he's using. Cut this guy's ear. It doesn't even make sense. Slicing his ear off. What a, what, a, what a crazy moment to be a part of. And this guy who is watching it all happen is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he sees what's happening and he's becoming angry because like a lot of us, he's loyal. He cares deeply about his friends and family. This is his mentor. This is the person who believed in him and stuck up for him. And he, in that moment, he's just like, if you come at us, you better beware because I'm packing. It may not be the biggest sword. But it doesn't matter. We'll cut you. And he did. He really did. It's not like he started it, right? He was just, he was just responding to it. And here's what I think is interesting. He could have easily defended his actions according to the code of the religion he grew up in. Right? We just read about it. An eye for an eye, an ear for a rabbi. Or whatever, something like that. And then he does it. And then like right in the moment, Jesus stops him. And he says this really cryptic thing. He says, those, who, those uh, who use the sword will die by the sword. And this isn't him being like, swords are unsafe, guys. We need more sword safety. I mean, even if you're trying to do good things with the sword, like, I mean, I cut myself chopping onions. You guys, eventually you're gonna, that's gonna get infected. And the sword, you know, it's not, that's not really what he's saying. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, when someone hurts us and we respond to them just like them, we become them. Because revenge turns the oppressed into an oppressor. Freedom from them requires we refuse to react like them. And this blew their minds because all anybody knew was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We pay them back in kind. If you do it to me, I do it back to you. We keep things fair and even. But Jesus came out many, many times saying, this is not the way my movement works. This is not the way my followers will behave. This is not the way my kingdom operates. 
And I gotta tell you, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who refuse to follow Jesus this way because it feels weak. And we don't wanna be weak. And we tell ourselves like, the only ones who don't fight back are the ones who can't, right? I mean, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, like, no one with the power to win would choose to lose. But in that very moment, Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, counteracts this idea or excuse. And in that very moment, when this happens, he goes on to say this. He says, don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he'd send them instantly? And you know what he's saying in this moment? I'm not powerless. Do you not see what's going on? This is me at my most powerful. You don't think I could crush these people instantly and easily? I'm choosing not to. That's what real strength looks like. And Jesus' followers were taken back and they were thinking like, okay, but then like, what are we supposed to do? Nothing? (laughs) But inaction is not really the answer here. It's not what Jesus was lobbying for. There's several different instances of this story being told in the gospels, right? There are these sort of four biographies written about Jesus by his followers. And in one of these accounts, we're told that Jesus doesn't just say something in that moment, that he does something. In, In the account by Luke, in the 22nd chapter of his book, verse 51, it says that Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Which I think begs the question first and foremost, what what did he mean by this? No more of this. Of the way you're reacting, of what you're thinking, of the way you see the world, of everything you want to do right now in this moment, partially for good reason, no more of this. This in Jesus' mind is graceless retaliation, no more. And then he proves it by healing the guy who just tried to hurt him. There's nothing more Jesus than that. That's like the most Jesus-y move ever. Because this is who he was, who he is. In fact, if you look at all of the stories of Jesus, what you would notice is that when someone opposed or offended him, Jesus chose responses that would give them life rather than get them back. Which was astounding and also kind of annoying. Because that's not what the people around him wanted him to do. And you know what the worst part is? He told his followers to do the same thing. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus be so insistent that like when someone opposes or offends us, that we should choose responses that give them life as opposed to just getting them back? It's because he insisted that while retaliation will hurt them back, only grace can heal us both. And that's what Jesus cared most about, healing. 
And as crazy as this idea sounds, it's true. Have you ever actually gotten someone back? Have you ever actually gotten to deliver that moment where you got to say and do the thing to that person to hurt them back in the way they hurt you? to get even in the way you've been dreaming about and fantasizing about for a long time. Maybe you have. If you haven't, I'll tell you this, because I've had a couple of these moments in my life. What happens is you get this spike of glee followed closely after by this sickening sense of emptiness. Because what you realize in the aftermath of having done what it is you wanted to do that getting them back and making them pay can't and won't make up for what you lost. And you sit in the pain of that reality. And what you realize in that moment is that you are still going to have to do your own inner work to become whole. And I think that's what the sword-drawing disciple in the story eventually realizes. Like all the other New Testament authors, when they write about this moment, um, they allow this disciple to remain anonymous. Except John. He just straight up says like, it was Peter, you guys. He just outs him. Which is probably frustrating if you're Peter. Um, but when you hear that, if you know anything about Peter, you're like, that's on brand. Yeah, it seems like he would be the guy. Like Jesus is like, don't bring swords. And he's like, this one's too little. It doesn't count. <laughs> But I think the fact that we know it's Peter makes something that he writes later so much deeper. Later on in his life, after Jesus had been crucified and died and resurrected and then appeared to the disciples and, and then disappeared into the clouds and told his disciples to carry on his mission, Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, Pay them back with a blessing. That's what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing when you do it. I'll tell you what, this, this passage doesn't mean near as much if you don't know where Peter came from. If you can't picture the moment when the worst thing he could ever imagine, his best friend, his mentor, the only person who ever believed in him. You guys saw the picture? Peter was old. He was past his prime. No one saw him as anyone who could do anything of greatness. And Jesus believed in him. And now one of the people in your circle is coming to betray your best friend who believed in you. And that, what does that make you? Who do you become when the one person who believed in and cared about you is gone? And his impulse was always to repay evil for evil. But in this moment, he's echoing the wisdom of Jesus. And he's not just echoing what he heard Jesus say. He is repeating what he saw Jesus do. And I gotta tell you, the thing that astonishes me about the person of Jesus is that he acted as if empathizing with and extending grace to others was the highest form of intelligence and the deepest form of spirituality. And there's no way to really argue with this when you look at how Jesus lived and the way he taught. 
But what's astounding about it is a lot of Christians seem to think that spiritual death means the opposite. Knowing enough scripture to prove that anyone who doesn't agree with you, like to prove to those people just how wrong and sinful and stupid and misinformed and misguided they are than you. But this was not Jesus' revolutionary philosophy. And here's the question I have for us this morning. What if we adopted Jesus' definition of deep faith? Because I gotta tell you, it's just as revolutionary now as it was then. Like if we sought to understand the experiences and perspectives of those who uh, oppose and offend us, to the extent that we could almost argue their position as good as they could? And what if that understanding empowered us to give them grace? And I gotta tell you, grace doesn't mean that you always give them what they want, but that you give them what they need. And you do so in a way that they're likely to hear and hold on to and take a healthy step forward because of. Because grace isn't just about what you say. It's about how you say it. It's not just about what you do. It's about how you do it. And I wonder if you were to wrestle with your responses in life, whether it's to friends or family, coworkers, enemies, people across the aisle politically than you, I wonder how you design your responses. Some of you are like, design? I just choose the default setting. And I wonder if that's working for you. Jesus came to say there's a better way. And if you're gonna follow me, before you respond to anyone about anything, you ought to craft that response according to what will give them life, not according to what will get them back. And if you do, what you will discover is healing comes to both of you. Here's my question to you this morning. Who needs from you the same grace God gives to you? Who needs from you the same grace God gives to you? And I'll give you a hint. It is it's probably someone that you don't want to give it to or it's a situation you don't want to give it in. And this is why you need God involved in giving you the ability to do what is right. Not what's right in your eyes, but what's righteous in his eyes. All through scripture, we're told the reason we give grace is because we've already received it. That you're only able to give grace that feels impossible because you've received the impossible grace of God. That he's given you his mercy that although he's justified, and making you pay for certain things that you've done, he does not. And yet, if you're honest about looking at your life, there are many moments in which God would have been justified in not blessing you, but he did and does and is. And he says, if you want to follow me, this is how we live. And the philosophy of grace has slowly changed the world. A time in a time before Jesus... The motto was show them no pity. And now we have this sense of let's hear them out. 
let's understand the story. Where can we give grace? This is not an American idea. This is not a democratic idea. This is a God idea. It began with Jesus. And if he can be trusted about this, what else can we trust him with? Everything. I wanna pray into your life today that God would give you the ability to receive his grace in your life and to reflect it to the people around you, people that it is most difficult for you to do that with in the situations that you'd rather not. Would you bow your heads with me across this room as we pray together? God, I know you see every heart, every life in this room. God, some of us have experienced a lot of really graceless moments. We've suffered the pain of being hurt, being held down, being treated unfairly, being taken advantage of. And there's this impulse buried deep within our humanity where we want to get them back. And yet you are whispering, there's a better way. Don't repeat the cycle. Don't become like them by responding just like them. Gain freedom from them, refusing to act like them. And instead, reflect the response of Jesus. God, in this room, we're all in different places with our faith walk with you. Some of us have believed in you for a long time. For some of us, we don't know what we believe. Some of us are confident that we have no belief. But what we do know is this, we need grace, we need mercy. There are things we have done that we can in no way pay for. And there are areas where we crave blessing and we know we don't deserve it. And God, I pray that as you show yourself faithful in these two areas, that as you show your character to us, as we receive your grace and your mercy, that our impulse would be to give it freely to everyone around us. God, that we would become agents of mercy and grace. God, already this philosophy has changed the world, but God, we have the power to enable it to change our world, our relationships, our family, our workplace, our neighborhood. God, I pray that we would become people who give grace as freely as it was given to us. And as we do, may we see the world evolve. May we see heaven coming to earth. May we see your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be people of grace, revolutionaries who reflect the revolutionary Jesus. We love you, Father. Make it so. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.